And that's why I think it's really beneficial to broaden beyond the individual modes. This isn't just about biking or just about walking or just about taking transit. It's about providing choice and increasing safety for everybody. Some people might come to it because they really care about the environmental issues and the quality of our clean air. Um, and some people might care about inclusivity and making sure that we've got affordable transportation options and that we're treating everybody with dignity and not treating some people like first class citizens and transit riders or pedestrians like second class citizens. So I think the bigger you can make the tent um, and focus on all the different benefits or reasons why people might care about this, the more successful that we're going to be. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host on this podcast journey towards healthier communities for everyone. It's so wonderful to have you along for the ride. In this episode, which I recorded in May, I have a conversation with Jill Locantori, the new executive director of the Denver Streets Partnership about the organization and her new role. We also talk about how the city and community is trying to come together to create safer streets for everyone in the face of the pandemic. Today's date is June 16th, 2020, and we awoke to the news that the city has painted the words Black Austin Matters in massive lettering on Congress Avenue in recognition of the Black Lives Matters movement and the end to systemic and institutional racism. We also learned that our city is sliding back into the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic with a massive surge in cases and hospitalizations which could very well overwhelm our existing healthcare system capacity. We must take definitive action on both of these fronts if we are to survive as a society, a nation, a city, and as a community. I know we can do this. We can put in the hard work necessary to make a difference, which brings us right back around to my conversation with Jill and the efforts of the Denver community. So without further delay, let's get episode 25 rolling. Jill Locantori from Denver and the Denver Streets Partnership. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thank you for having me. So how are things there in Denver right now? It seems like it's been a little bit of a hesitant sort of spring. Are you guys warming up finally? Yeah, we're having beautiful spring weather here in Denver, which means everybody wants to get outside and be walking and biking and rollerblading and just enjoying our climate that we're lucky to have here in Colorado, which has shown a spotlight on the need for safe spaces to do that. Uh, fortunately, the city has created some shared and open streets, and we're seeing that they're getting a, an incredible amount of use right now. Fantastic. Well, so the last time you and I saw each other was in September for the International Parking Day. And I think it's, it's what, September 22nd each year is, is when, they, when they do International Parking Day. And so I got to see you in the downtown Denver area. At that time, you were part of the Denver Streets Partnership, but you had a different role. So let's go, let's wind the clock back a little bit and talk a little bit about what you were doing then and what you're doing now and that whole transition uh, because it all, it's all connected. 
Absolutely. So previously, I was the executive director of Walk Denver, which was Denver's pedestrian advocacy organization. And we came together with other bicycle and transit advocacy groups to form the Denver Streets Partnership as a coalition of community-based groups that were working collectively to reclaim Denver's streets for people. Regardless of what mode of transportation you're using, we all have a right to be safe in, in our streets. And we felt that we, we, we would be more effective in our advocacy if we got outside of our silos of thinking of ourselves as a pedestrian versus a bicyclist versus a transit rider um, and spoke collectively to the city with a unified voice about the, the mobility needs of Denver residents. That was so successful in terms of really starting to move the needle here in Denver and how we think about and manage our streets that we decided it, it made sense for us to go ahead and merge Bicycle Colorado and Walk Denver together into one advocacy organization um, and to staff the Denver Streets Partnership as a division of Bicycle Colorado that focuses on multimodal transportation, walking, biking, transit, safe streets for everybody. Right, right. And and I love this. I, I actually have used Denver's example in multiple uh, conversations and in, actually in past uh, podcast episodes because I see it as being able to solidify an organization's efforts by, you know, getting under one in, in under one big tent. And so I love that concept because we know it's hard. I mean, we've been doing advocacy work for many, many years and it's hard to be able to do this. And when it's the message is so fragmented and maybe too focused, it's difficult. And, and we saw that, you know, even Bike Denver went away and that was part of the, the challenge. And so I think that that's a that's a really, really exciting thing to see that you're have been able to come together under this Denver Streets Partnership. So you alluded to it a little bit in terms of the momentum that had been building. And but let's talk pre-pandemic. What was the what was that momentum? Talk, talk through a little bit about what Denver was going through before all of this happened. Well, originally what brought the members of the Denver Streets Partnership Coalition together was the issue of funding, that the city was not just not spending enough money to build out our sidewalks and our bike lanes and our transit network in a timely manner. And instead of each of us advocating separately over here for sidewalk money and over here for bicycle money, we decided to, to come together and speak collectively about the need to invest more money in mobility overall so that we can achieve the goals that our city has set out in terms of reducing air pollution, providing safe options for Denver residents to get around without necessarily having to drive uh, so one of our early successes was working with the city on the general obligation bond package that they put together in 2017. It was about a billion dollar package and about half of it was for transportation projects. And through our efforts, the, the vast majority of that funding is going to sidewalks, bike lanes, complete streets and vision zero improvements that will actually start building out more complete multimodal networks. It's not a complete solution to our problem, but it was a good jump start, um, moving us much further than where we had been previously. Fantastic. 
has you mentioned Vision Zero? Is there also a separate uh, Vision Zero organization out there, or is that also under sort of your big tent? Yeah, so Walk Denver also started up the Vision Zero Coalition uh, back in 2016, around the same time that the Denver Streets Partnership Coalition came together. Um, the Vision Zero Coalition was focused on street safety, reducing fatalities and serious injuries. The Denver Streets Partnership Coalition was focused on transportation funding initially, but we realized we were bringing together essentially the same group of community partners to talk about these two different issues, and it didn't make sense for us to have two different coalitions. Uh, so that was one of the first steps of our evolution was to bring these two coalitions together under the umbrella of Denver Streets Partnership and broaden our focus to include transportation funding, Vision Zero, and more generally, transportation policy. Because it's one thing to have money to be making improvements to our streets, but we wanted to make sure we had really good policies in place that guided how that funding was spent. Right, right. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's, and it's wonderful because it really speaks to the point that it's not about any individual special interest group, you know, the cyclists over here or the pedestrian advocates over there. It's really about safer communities. It's about creating an environment where all ages and abilities can have the freedom of, of mobility out on their streets. So that's, I'm so, it, you saw how big I was smiling. <laughs> it was great. It's, I absolutely dig the fact that you guys, you know, connected all those dots and, and, and made it happen. So that's really fantastic. Let's stick with a little bit of that momentum that was happening prior to the pandemic. Um, obviously, there's a little something called winter in, in Colorado. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of like the the really vibrant activity out on the streets isn't necessarily happening in the dead of winter, but you know, it's a pretty sunny place, you know, even in the winter time, but prior to this all happening and even going back to last summer, there was a lot of, there was a huge stir in the Denver area about safer streets. Speak to that a little bit because there was, you know, I, I, I think I even remember seeing uh, like one of the, the local news anchors, you know, putting an opinion piece out. And, and, and so there was a lot being, I know it's, it, it seems like it was like years ago <laughs> now, but that was just last July that all that was happening. Talk, talk a little bit about that because I think it's all interconnected. Yeah, 2019 was a pretty bad year for traffic violence in Denver. Um, we ended up having a record number of traffic fatalities, a total of 70 across the whole year, which is the highest number we've hit in a very long time. Um, and not only was it a large number, but there were some very high profile fatalities that involved, you know, well-known members of the, the community and, and bicyclist fatalities in particular which was just really heart-wrenching. You know, it's one thing to talk about the statistics and the numbers, but it's another thing when it's people that you know. Um, these are human beings whose lives were, were tragically cut short. And so I think the silver lining was that it really did bring the community together to rally around this vision for, you know, the goal of zero fatalities. This is actually possible if we just have the political will to pursue it. And I think last summer, the groundswell of community support for safer streets really 
helped move the needle in that regard in terms of focusing the attention of the local media, focusing the attention of our city leaders on the seriousness of this issue and the urgency to act quickly. You know, Denver has a very strong Vision Zero action plan, but that doesn't mean a whole lot if we're not actually implementing the strategies and recommendations in that plan. And I think we're in 2020 probably going to see a pretty good acceleration of, of some of the traffic uh, street improvements that are identified in our, our Vision Zero plan. Yeah. And part of the challenge, of course, is that, it, as you mentioned, it, it's it's one thing to have the plan. It's another thing to actually implement it. And what I loved about um, the position that uh, Kyle Clark took, uh, you know, when he did his piece, uh, you know, on Nine News, and I'll be sure to uh, provide a, a link to that in the show notes uh, for this episode, is that he he really sort of called out the fact that the nimbyism was was popping up, you know, under the auspice of trying to make safer streets, you started to have people resisting that and coming up with really bizarre sort of reasons to try to resist having safer streets. And, you know, it, it, it's it, everything's in a different context now. But I thought that that was an interesting discussion to kind of put out there here today before we talk about the open streets and the safer streets in, you know, in the context of the pandemic, because so much has changed. I mean, those, I, I'm hoping those NIMBY arguments have really quieted down. Yeah, you know, car culture is so entrenched in America, and we all grew up with this assumption that cars are such an essential part of our lifestyle and kind of blind to all of the negative consequences of that. Uh, and I think, you know, the fatalities last summer really started help shining a light on how much we've been willing to sacrifice for the, the sake of convenience and driving and caused people like Kyle Clark at Nine News here in Denver to start questioning, is it is it really okay to allow people to die and suffer serious life-altering injuries for the sake of being able to park conveniently in front of your house? You know, these are questions that we hadn't really asked before, but when you pose them in a very public way, suddenly the answer being, no, my parking space is more important than a human life doesn't sound so good anymore. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and at least one of the NIMBYs that came up was, you know, pulling up sort of the bogus excuse of, oh, it's going to change my beautiful street. And it was like this aesthetic is going to be damaged by, you know, having, you know, safer places for people on the street. Really bizarre. Yeah, it's actually sparked a really great discussion about the history of our streets here in Denver and how have they been used and what have they looked like over time and you know, people pulling out from the local library, these great pictures of people on bikes in the early 1900s um, and our streets downtown filled with people walking and biking and streetcars all mixed together. So when we think about what is the purpose of our streets today and historically, you know, the reality is it's constantly changing and it's a reflection of, of what our community values are at any particular moment in time. 
I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's this particular neighborhood is right there near Washington Park. So this is a this is a neighborhood that existed prior to the explosion of the automobile being the only way to get around. So I mean these are these are neighborhoods where that were established probably early in, you know, the 1900s and you know certainly what the street character was like was like you said much more multimodal which brings us right around to today because now we're in a situation where because of the need for physical distancing we're needing more space and we're starting to see neighborhood after neighborhood people flooding out into the streets to be able to create get out to get a little bit of fresh air and to be able to have that wellness walk or bike ride Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in Denver in that context, based on what we were just talking about of of that battle that was happening in 2019. Yeah, as soon as Mayor Hancock issued his stay-at-home orders in, in late March, we immediately saw an increase in the number of people out walking and biking, and particularly in our city parks, you know, people who were cooped up in the house all day long, they might not have a backyard, they might have kids or dogs that need exercise. We're just clearly looking for space to get out, to exercise, to walk and to bike. You know, and I've always felt one of the the best forms of community engagement is just to observe what people are doing and where are they struggling and how are they expressing what they want and desire through their behavior. Um, And so that's what we were seeing is that people were expressing the desire to walk and bike and that they didn't have enough space to do so and started walking in the streets even without protection um, from cars in those streets. So there was some initial discussion in the media and elsewhere of should we be closing parks entirely and and telling people to just stay home um, so that they're not too close together and violating those physical distancing requirements. But that seemed like the, the opposite of what we needed, that we needed more space to be exercising and getting outside. And we have a wealth of space with our city streets typical city, the streets account for about 80% of the public space. Um, Even during normal times, a lot of the streets are are empty when they are reserved solely for cars and people who are walking and biking don't feel like they're allowed to be there. So an obvious solution seemed to be repurposing that space and giving people what they were clearly expressing they needed through their behavior. Okay, so the shutdown happened in March, and immediately the community responded by saying, you know, hey, we we do need to be able to get some fresh air. We need to be able to take care of our health, keep our immune systems up. They hit to the streets. How did the Denver Streets Partnership respond, and how did the city of Denver respond? So we put out an online survey and got a tremendous response. In a very short period of time, we had nearly 1,500 responses from community members telling us that, yes, in fact, they are walking and biking more now than they were prior to COVID, um, that they were concerned about physical distancing and needed more space to get out, and that they strongly supported, uh, you know, about 90% of people we surveyed said they supported repurposing street space um, for the sake of allowing people to walk and bike. And we asked people to suggest, are there specific streets in your neighborhood that you think would be a good candidate for this? And we got suggestions for over 250 different streets 
that people thought could be repurposed for walking and biking. Uh, to me, that says that everybody's got a street in their neighborhood that they think you know is underutilized for cars and could be put to better use. So we shared all of that input with the city. Uh, and to their credit, they acted very quickly. They were one of the first cities in the country to start designating shared streets where traffic is restricted, people can still access the street in their car if they need to park in front of their house, but the priority is placed on people walking and biking. And the city also designated open streets where vehicular traffic is entirely prohibited um, and only people walking and biking are allowed. Those in Denver are concentrated in our parks throughout the city. And again, immediately we saw people starting to use those streets. Uh, we've been doing some bike and ped counts. And for example, on one street, we see about quadruple the number of people walking and biking on that street now that it's been designated a shared street compared to previous time periods. Um, and then we also put out another survey to ask people what their experience is using these shared and open streets. And again, 90% of people say that they love these streets. They want to see them maintained permanently, even after COVID, because they are just such an asset to have in their neighborhood. Yeah, it really seemed to me like the city of Denver was possibly because of the trauma of and that process of what, what they were going through in 2019 seemed to be poised to act very, very quickly. And you're absolutely right. It was one of the first cities to in the continental United States to actually move quickly to to just deploy and and put it out there and and learn, you know, almost that tactical urbanism thing of, you know, lighter, quicker, cheaper. Let's put it, let's do something and then let's learn from this and reiterate, you know, time and time again. So you mentioned something there about, you know, the shared streets. Uh, Denver, I think it was also pushing to sort of decrease the speed limit too. sort of a 20 is plenty uh, campaign. What's the status on that? Yeah, we've had kind of an interesting rival with our neighbor, uh, the city of Boulder to the north. Uh, they've actually leapfrogged Denver on the issue of speed limits. Their city council recently voted to reduce their default speed limit to 20 miles per hour. Whereas here in Denver, we're still studying the issue. The Denver Streets Partnership has been pushing pretty hard that this is important not just because speed is one of the biggest contributors to traffic fatalities and serious injuries, but we see setting a, a lower default speed limit as a, a really important political statement that the city can make, that human life and health is more important than the speed of driving. And even though we, take, we know it takes more than changing the speed limit, that is, establishes the, the, the goalposts, that we want to redesign our streets to be at these slower speeds, not at the current higher speed limits. So the city agreed to study whether or not they think it's a good idea to lower the speed limit across the board. Don't have a definitive answer on that yet, uh, but we're hoping that Boulder's action uh, as our neighboring city helps light a fire under Denver to, to do the same. After this very brief intermission, Jill and I continue our discussion about hopeful progress towards setting lower speed limits and slower street design in Denver. How she came to be passionate about and engaged with creating safer, more equitable streets, and 
how living a car-free lifestyle impacts her personally. But first, I have to pause to send out a big thank you to all of our donors and patrons. Active Towns is a very small 501c3 nonprofit. It's just me, folks, and I simply could not produce this content without your support. I convert your generous contributions directly into these efforts to inspire and influence safer, more inviting and inclusive environments that support a culture of activity. So here's my plea. If you are in a position to do so, please consider making a contribution or becoming a patron through our Patreon account. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't checked it out recently, I just added some fun thank you gifts to the Patreon contribution tiers, including our brand new logo hats from Head Sweats and custom face mask to bandanas from Pandana USA. I've included all the appropriate links in the show notes, or you can just head out to our website at activetowns.org. Again, thank you so very much. Also, if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice. This really does help. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do share it with a friend, colleague, or family member. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to our conversation with Jill Locantori. With that context of you've got shared streets, the reality is that a shared street is inherently a traffic calm street. This is an environment where anything more than 20 miles per hour, arguably one could say even maybe 15 miles per hour is what's appropriate in a shared street context. And we can look to the Netherlands as examples of that, where they have their Fietstraats and their bicycle boulevards, which are set at 30 kilometers per hour, which is roughly the equivalent of 17 miles per hour. And then they have their Woonerfs, where you have extremely low speeds and it's a shared street environment. Based on that, based on the fact that you have (laughs) the shared streets, Boulder doesn't, you have the shared streets, but you don't have the 20 is plenty. It seems like you might be able to, you know, leverage this. Yeah, hopefully part of the resistance we've gotten from the city is they don't want to lower the speed limits without changing the street design because it can be kind of a mixed bag to say speed limits here 20 is 20 miles per hour, but the street design is inviting you to go 40 miles per hour, you know, and and how do you really enforce that? But with the shared streets, it's demonstrated that it's really not that complicated to reinforce safe speeds. They didn't have to do any construction at all. They didn't have to move any curb lines. You know, all they had to do was put out some inexpensive barriers and overnight, Um, the vast majority of drivers are going much slower and proceeding with much more caution than they had previously. Of course, it's not perfect. um, And of course, you have the outliers of, you know, just angry drivers who who want to drive fast no matter what. Uh, But we've seen that the vast majority of drivers are, are really being very conscientious and yielding to people walking and biking in the street. Uh, so I think it, it reinforces to the city, if we say our goal is slow speeds and we change our speed limit to the what we think is the appropriate speed for neighborhoods, for places where families are out with their 
their kids, we can follow that up with inexpensive street designs that reinforce that. And it, we don't have to use one as the excuse for the other. We can't lower the speed limit because we can't do good street design or we can't do the street design because it'd be inconsistent with the speed limit. We can pursue both at the same time. Yeah. And the fact that you have a groundswell of interest from a community that is like, wow, we're liking these quieter streets and, you know, the lower prevailing speeds that people are traveling in motor vehicles. This is comfortable. We like this. Let's let's have this. So being able to have that as a little bit of the uh, of the grounds, the groundswell of support to make change, hopefully that will, you know, make that process happen a little quicker. And as you said, it doesn't have to be fancy. You could do some pretty quick, lighter, quicker, cheaper traffic calming devices and concepts, uh, especially like, you know, pop-up traffic circles, you know, that can be, you know, done that, you know, brings that prevailing speeds down to, you know, 15 miles per hour or less in those areas. So that's good stuff. So as we look at where, you know, all of this has suddenly happened, we, we took you from the summer of 2019 and the, and the stuff that was happening there. And then you made the, the jump over. Now you're the executive director of the Gen Denver Streets Partnership. And then all of a sudden, COVID-19 happens and shared streets are happening. You're collecting all these different uh, surveys and doing all that. You're, you're, you're pretty busy. <laughs> I am incredibly busy. I'm I'm definitely blessed to have a job that I can do remotely from my computer at home and that our work still does feel incredibly relevant right now and probably even more important than ever. Um, that we think about the role of transportation in our community and how does it support our community's needs and how do we be nimble in meeting those needs. So yeah, we've <laughs> even though we've had to cancel a lot of our activities, you know, we did have a number of pop-up tactical urbanism events for the spring that were planned. You know, bike to work day got canceled this year. Um, we've had more work than ever in thinking about what are people's mobility needs in this really weird time, um, and how do we advocate to help support those needs. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to circle back around to other initiatives that y'all are doing with the Denver Streets Partnership. But one, one thing that sort of popped into my head that I just realized I haven't asked you is how on earth did you get into all this? What, what drove you to, to be passionate about this kind of stuff? Uh, really, it was my experience living in, in different cities and coming to understand how the design of the cities have such a big impact on the quality of life for people who live there. Um, I grew up in Colorado Springs, which is south of Denver, um, is a pretty traditional kind of community that grew up after World War II, very oriented around automobiles. I-25 was basically our main street that everybody used to get around. And so just very immersed in a car culture where cars were how you got everywhere you went. Uh, but then I moved around to a few different cities for school and work. For graduate school, I ended up moving to Toronto and I couldn't afford to bring my car with me. Um, you know, I had a whole bunch of student debt that I needed to pay down. I was making a measly little income as a research assistant at the university in Toronto. 
and just couldn't afford to have a car. And so I was kind of forced to readjust my lifestyle and figure out how do you do things like go grocery shopping and get where you need to go without a car. And I realized in Toronto, it was actually pretty easy because they have a fantastic transit system, because they have pretty dense mixed-use neighborhoods that put things within easy walking and biking distance, um, because they have a great network of parks that make it safe and inviting for you to walk and bike places. And I realized that that didn't happen by accident. That was very deliberate planning that created this community where even somebody like me who had very little means could have a good quality of life. And so I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to help other people have access to that good quality of life by helping design whatever community I was living in. Fantastic. And, you know, and what a great example too, because, you know, Toronto is obviously one of those cities that's really trying to push the envelope here in North America. They're uh, protected bike lanes that they installed a few years ago with the the planter boxes or, or, you know, you know, just a, another step towards incrementally towards making the streets, you know, safer and more inviting for all ages and abilities. And of course, Gil Penulosa is up there with the eight to 80 group. And uh, obviously every city is not moving as quickly as we would all like to see them move, but it, it sounds like it had a profound impact on you in being able to help with your sense of self-efficacy that you could actually live a car light lifestyle. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's really, I tell people it's not difficult living without a car. It's just different. You just have to have very different habits. And yes, some communities are easier to live in without a car than others. Some lifestyle needs make living without a car more difficult if you have kids or you have a line of work like being a real estate agent But there's so many inconveniences that we put up with uh, when we're driving cars that we become kind of habituated to, like having to find a parking space everywhere you go. And when you're going out on the evenings or weekends, having to be conscientious about drinking and driving and, and, you know, maybe not having as good a time as you would like because you you have to drive the car later and you have to pay for all the maintenance costs associated with your car and fill it up with gas and get it cleaned and you know, I've been able to let all of that go by living a car-free lifestyle. And so there's a lot of inconveniences I don't have to deal with um, as a non-car owner. Sometimes, yeah, there are some additional inconveniences I have to deal with, you know, because it takes me longer to get someplace without a car, or I have to be more prepared in terms of the weather. But again, it just comes back to habit. Like, once you have good habits, you don't think about it much. And the, the fact that you have to wear a few extra layers to deal with the weather when you're outside of a car instead of inside, it's no big deal. It's, it's just becomes part of your lifestyle. One of the things that, that I really appreciate about you in, and so we're, we're connected via social media. So we're, we're social media friends. You do a great job of illustrating some of the joys that living a car light and car free uh, lifestyle can bring to you that that richness. And so 
I will frequently see a, a photograph, a beautiful photograph that you've posted, um, you know, from a wellness walk or, or from explorations that you and your husband are, have, have done. Talk a little bit about that because that, that speaks to another one of those advantages, the, the richness of life and being able to, to like appreciate that amazing sunset or that beautiful flower. Yeah, I think that can sometimes be a hard thing for people to understand uh, if they drive everywhere they go, how much joy you can get from walking or biking or taking transit. Um, you know, how many people ever describe their car commute as joyful or that when they arrive at their destination, they feel refreshed and revived because they drove there. And yet that's how I feel all the time when I, when I'm walking or biking to different neighborhoods in Denver is that I have opportunities to observe the details of those neighborhoods and notice beauty that you would completely miss when you're going 40 miles miles per hour whizzing past. Um, and I do often arrive in a good mood and happy to be there simply because of, of how I got there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that brings me to another thing is that it, this impacts your health and well-being. Absolutely. We know that sitting is the new smoking, right? That sedentary lifestyles contribute to poor health in so many different ways and it's kind of silly because it's so easy to incorporate physical exercise into our lives if we make it practical and convenient for people to do so. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to take time out of your day to do a special workout. Um, if it, you just have 15 minutes to walk to your transit stop each day on your way to and from work, that actually gets you your daily recommended dose of exercise. Um, and you had to do nothing other than to go to work and back. And so it's such a natural and easy way for us to incorporate physical activity into our lives. Um, we should absolutely be working to make that possible for, for people to do it, as opposed to how we've traditionally been planning our communities, where it seems like we deliberately are trying to discourage people from you know, incorporating physical activity into their daily lives. Yeah. And when we can create safe and inviting places appropriate for all ages and abilities, then it could also be something that touches what we talked about earlier, which is that joy, that beauty, you know, creating an environment where, oh yeah, this, this helps me, you know, mentally and emotionally and helps me de-stress. And so there, there's, it's that whole concept of, you know, a complete wellness approach to it. Talk a little bit about the, the Safe Streets Photo Voice project. Yeah, well, we were brainstorming about how we can be engaging people during this time, you know, with physical distancing. We, we can't have community meetings. We can't be doing community events that bring people together and, uh, to celebrate our streets or to better understand our streets and talk about how to improve them. Uh, so we came up with this idea of a photo voices project. Since people say they're they're out walking and biking around their neighborhoods more than previously, why not encourage them to bring their their cameras with them? You know, everybody's got one on their cell phone, and be looking at your streets and thinking about them and what works, what doesn't work, what makes you feel safe. You know, what gives you concern or stress as you're out walking and biking, and document that. Um, and make it a conversation for the family, you know, something that parents can talk about with their kids and, and kids can be engaged with um, and share those stories with us 
to help build up the body of evidence of uh, here are streets that are working well in Denver, and here are areas that really could could use some help to to better serve the needs of our community. Yeah, yeah. And in the spirit of your name, the Denver Streets Partnership, who is your partner on that project? Uh, so we are still operating as a coalition, um, even though uh, Walk Denver and Bicycle Colorado merged to fully staff the Denver Streets Partnership. We still have a steering committee um, made up of allied organizations that bring a whole variety of perspectives to the issue of, of people-friendly streets. And so a couple of those coalition members came together with us to help plan this Photo Voices project, in particular COPERG, um, which has done a lot of great environmental advocacy work here in Colorado, um, and the American Heart Association, which brings the lens of health and equity to, to the work that we're doing. Fantastic. Jill, what has surprised you most about this tenure that you've had <laughs> with uh, the Denver Streets Partnership? What have you just been blown away by? Well, I think to be honest, I, I've really been impressed with how far we've come in terms of the cultural shift of thinking about our streets and what is the purpose of our streets and, and who has a right to be there. You know, I, I mentioned I got into this work because I had to give up my car when I moved to Toronto purely for financial reasons. That was in the late 90s, giving away my age here, how long I've been around and working on this stuff. Um, but I was kind of an outlier then, you know, when I introduced myself to people and I mentioned that I didn't own a car, people would give me really weird looks and be like, oh my God, how do you do that? How do you even survive without a car? But now I know more and more people like me and it's, it's not so weird at all for people to say, I don't own a car or I wish I didn't have to own a car. It's become much more mainstream. And so I feel like we're really at a tipping point in our culture where the, the population is there. I think, I think a lot of people, at least in Denver, really want to live in a city where car ownership is not mandatory that they can get to their daily destinations and take care of their daily needs without a car. And we just need our political leadership to follow along with us. And so I think that's what's been surprising to me is that we got to this cultural tipping point as, as fast as we did. Change seems impossible until it actually happens. And then it almost seems inevitable. And I feel like we're getting to that point with, with transportation issues. It seems as if you, this momentum is part of what keeps you hopeful and keeps you going because I know you're swamped. I know you're just absolutely slammed with work. But other than that, that momentum keeping you hopeful, what, what, else, what do you do? How do you stay hopeful and, and keep, you know, keep positive that uh, things are, you know, that this hard work is worth it? Well, definitely hearing from community members is really inspiring. I mean, that's ultimately who we do this work for. You know, at the heart of our work is people. We spend a lot of time talking about streets and arcane things like street design and the city budget. But at the end of the day, it's about supporting our community and the people who live in our community. And it's just been tremendous to hear their responses to our survey, asking people how they feel about the shared and open streets. 
um, and talking using words like joy and spectacular and essential and life changing, you know, it, it gives me the sense that we're on to something here, that, that this is really important work and that it really is improving the quality of lives of the, the people in Denver and giving them dignity in places where they didn't have it before. And so that's that's really the the focus of our work that keeps us going. Yeah. So part of the mission, it does include transit. What's sort of the status of, of transit in, uh, in, in the Denver metro area right now? Uh, given the current situation, I think nationally, any transit authority is in a rather precarious situation. Yeah, we certainly face some real serious challenges ahead. We, you know, we were struggling with some serious issues related to transit even before COVID. Um, we had a serious bus driver shortage here in Denver, which again is an issue nationally as well. And our agency, RTD, had even had to cut back service because they just didn't have enough drivers to be out driving the buses around the city. And then COVID hit. And it's been a huge financial strain on our transit agency. Sales tax is a big source of their budget. And we're now forecasting dramatic decreases in sales tax combined with increased expenses associated with all the extra cleaning protocols that they have to go through and the like, uh, as well as public perception. You know, a lot of people just don't feel safe using transit right now because of the physical distancing requirements um, and being concerned about being able to maintain that safe space between people while using transit. And at the same time, it's also highlighted that transit is truly an essential part of our community. That's the only way, option that some people have to get to and from work, and particularly our essential workers. A lot of people who work at hospitals or grocery stores, they don't necessarily make very big incomes. And so they've been relying on transit as their primary way of getting around. So we have some really daunting challenges ahead of us. I think it's going to cause us to think hard about, you know, what is the the important essential role of transit in our community? Um, how do we support uh, the core functioning of transit so that it can continue to survive and hopefully thrive? But also in this period of time when people just realistically aren't going to be using transit at much, what options can we give them other than driving to get around um, so that people don't feel like they now have to buy a car in order to get where they need to go? Or we suddenly see a glut of vehicular traffic, you know, clogging our streets. Can we get people using e-bikes? Can we make micro-mobility like scooters a more viable option? Can we build out the bicycle infrastructure to get more people feeling comfortable using modes and focus on those routes parallel to the transit system? Yeah, I think that's that's probably the, the wisest choice. And, and I can reflect back to the mid-1990s myself when I lived in Boulder and would commute every day uh, from from Boulder to downtown Denver. My office was at 17th in California. And, you know, so that was a transit ride that just made complete sense. You know, I would never drive. I would never even consider driving from Boulder to, to downtown Denver. A, it was even in the mid-1990s, it was perceived as being too expensive to have to park, park your car in downtown. And so that made sense for me. But 
I, it also made sense for me thinking about like many of my friends that I worked with in that office that were actually residents of Denver, they could easily get around because the distances, the proximity was such that they could easily get around if it were only safe enough to do so by bike. And so that may be where we end up going in North America is those longer trips, those 24 to 25 mile, 30 mile trips that are the commute trips that still happen. Maybe that's the regional transit thing that ends up happening and really building out a safe and inviting all ages and abilities bicycle network so that the shorter trips, those trips that are six miles or less and with, like you said, you mentioned the, the electric assist. Wow. Imagine, you know, <laughs> imagine your range that you're able to have. So maybe it's less of reliance on those shorter transit rides on the buses and more and more people, people who are able to, you know, make that trip by bike, have that option. It'd be wonderful to have the choices. And there's definitely signs here in Denver that people are taking a fresh look at biking as a way of getting around. Our bike shops are telling us that they are humming with business and selling out bikes fast. They're going to be out of stock soon and unable to sell any more bikes because there's so many people who are looking to acquire a bike at this time. So this could be a, a real turning point where all of a sudden we're getting a lot more people out on bikes than ever thought of that as a mobility option before. And it just becomes all that much more important to make sure we're providing safe places and routes for them to use those bikes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I dated myself as well. <laughs> I've been I've been at this uh, uh, healthy communities and and uh, activity promotion for the better part of thirty years now, and but you've been at it for some time as well. So, Jill, as a veteran trying to create healthier places, what advice would you have to any of our listeners that are? Are, are motivated. They're they're excited about making a difference in their communities. What advice would you have for them? Well, definitely be persistent. Change does take time, um, and it's not going to happen and happen overnight. So it definitely requires some patience and some willingness to you know say the same thing over and over again. Uh, and you're going to get the answer no a lot, and then one day you're going to get a yes. <laughs> And so being able to celebrate uh, those smaller victories along the way, but keep an eye on the ultimate goal with an understanding that it, it'll take time, but we'll get there, um, I think is a really important perspective to keep in mind. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned it earlier. And then there's a few folks that I follow um, on social media, on Twitter, that are parents and just community members that got engaged. And it just occurred to me that that's one of the things that Denver is doing a really good job of is activating community members and then those community members be vo vocal advocates of safer streets. Talk a little bit to that. Yeah, it, you definitely need a coalition, I find, to, to make change happen. And the more diverse coalition, you're better, better successful you're going to be. And so finding all the different reasons that, that people might care about safe streets. Um, and that's why I think it's really beneficial to broaden beyond the individual modes. This isn't just about biking or just about walking or just about taking transit. It's about providing choice and increasing safety for everybody. 
Some people might come to it because they really care about the environmental issues and the quality of our clean air. And some people might care about inclusivity and making sure that we've got affordable transportation options and that we're treating everybody with dignity and not treating some people like first-class citizens and transit riders or pedestrians like second-class citizens. So I think the bigger you can make the tent and focus on all the different benefits or reasons why people might care about this, um, the more successful that we're going to be. Well said. Jill, any final thoughts or additional uh, initiatives that we haven't uh, had a chance to talk about yet? Uh, Well, I guess the other direction that we're starting to focus on now, building on the success of our shared and open streets, is looking at our main streets and our commercial districts throughout the city. You know, I always we've always thought of commercial main streets as part of a walkable community, having places that you can access on foot or bike. You know, you don't have to get into your car to to get to the grocery store is, is really essential. But how do we help these businesses open back up now that the stay-at-home orders are starting to lift? We still have the physical distancing requirements, and so they have a space problem, too. How do the restaurants accommodate people yet have at least six or ten feet between the tables? Is this another opportunity for us to be rethinking our public space and our streets and our public right-of-way and how we could use that space to start creating open air markets that give the businesses more room to open up safely, uh, I think is a really exciting opportunity and has a groundswell of interest from businesses and property owners and business improvement districts throughout the city. Uh, So we're working again collectively as in a very collaborative way to urge the city to make this possible. You know, we need new rules about if you're eating outside and what are the liquor license requirements there and what are the permits that we need to set up a patio inside the, the parking lot. But it's all part of this, I think, really creative thinking that's happening right now about our public space, so much of which we've ceded to cars historically is now the time when we can figure out how to use that space better to support our public health and to support economic recovery from the COVID virus. Yeah, and it and it sounds like a, a an opportune moment in in the sense of engaging with some of those local business owners that are struggling so hard right now to to have them be part of this coalition and under that tent to call for being able to make it, you know, A, like you said, they need more space. They, they, they could probably really use that uh, parking spot in front of their business right about now as a pop-up eating facility, you know, additional chairs. And, and you know, again, going back to what that particular event that uh, uh, we uh, met up at last uh, fall, uh, International Parking Day. Can you reimagine what that real estate could be used for. And in this case, it it very well could be reconfiguring things to help these small businesses, you know, survive. I think it will also be interesting to see if we can sort of reestablish our connections to our more local businesses and do what we can to support them. And hopefully making it safer and more inviting for people to get there by walking or biking uh, using transit, all the better, because then you know the business doesn't have to worry about having to have massive numbers of parking spaces to try to accommodate lots of cars. 
Exactly. It's an opportunity for us to really bring to life this idea of a 20 minute neighborhood. You know, what if you had all the things you needed on a daily basis within a 20 minute walk or bike ride of your house and really refocusing on our local economy and and how we can all support each other um, in that very small universe that is our walkable and bikeable neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Beautifully said. And of course, the biggest city that worldwide that is uh, really push, pushing that whole concept of the 20 minute neighborhood is Paris and, and really striving to create that concept of, hey, you can pretty much meet all your daily needs within a, an easy 20 minute walk, bike or transit ride. You, you don't have to get into a motor vehicle to meet those needs. Beautifully said. Jill, thank you so very much. It's been an absolute joy catching up with you and hearing about the Denver Streets Partnership and all the wonderful things that are happening there in your fine city of Denver. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And thanks once again to Jill Locantori with the Denver Streets Partnership for joining me on the podcast. It is imperative during these truly challenging times to ensure that our communities, especially our streets, parks, trails, and pathways are safe, inviting, and inclusive places where everyone is welcome and embraced. As always, please don't hesitate to reach out with any questions or suggestions. It's always so wonderful to hear from you. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns.org. Again, that's john, J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. Oh, and by the way, I have quite a few episodes in the queue, including Graham Hill with Shared Paths out of Boulder, Colorado, Roshan Austin with The Works in Memphis, Tennessee, Curtis Rogers with Parkade, and Nicole DeBoom with Skirt Sports, also out of Boulder. Just to name a few. Please take care of yourselves and one another. Until next time, this is John signing off, wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.